In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Today on Notably Disney, I am excited to speak with author Spencer Wright, the individual behind a really cool book called Voices Behind the Magic. So in this title, Spencer gives background behind 13 performers who have lent their voice to one or often many Disney characters over the years, often playing roles in other Disney properties as well that were maybe not animated, and giving context to their really rich lives and experiences. And it's I feel like it's just a wonderful foundation to learn more about folks like Eleanor Audley, Eartha Kitt, Bing Crosby, and so many more. I think it's, uh, it's wonderful to get that taste of a person via a book like this and to recognize, as Spencer really adeptly covers here, their really significant contributions to Disney um, with the roles that they portrayed. So you'll hear about some of those stories and many of those contributions during our interview. Well, today on Notably Disney, I am excited to bring on author Spencer Wright, who recently penned a great title called Voices Behind the Magic, and it chronicles a variety of different uh, very famous and sometimes maybe even less familiar talented individuals who have lent their vocal prowess to the Walt Disney Company over the years. And Spencer and I are going to talk about the book's development, uh, and also a lot of fun facts and stories along the way. So thank you for joining me today, Spencer. Thank you for having me on. Well, I'd love for us to begin by just exploring your connection to Disney animation, given that that is a major component of the book in terms of really highlighting those vocal artists. What what led you to, to be interested in Disney animation and ultimately the people behind those characters? 
So I do have a lifelong love of Disney, of the movies, of the parks. Um, and about five years ago, I found myself really loving studying Disney history and starting to collect information. So I really wanted to do something with it, either maybe a blog or a podcast. And then eventually I thought a book might be a great idea. You know, it's a great way to sit with material for several years to really go through it. And so I started to look at well, what topic maybe hasn't been addressed as thoroughly as others. What, what might I be interested in learning? So I found myself constantly gravitated to a lot of the people who did voices for animated characters. And they also sometimes do voices in the parks as well. So I started to put together a list and I cover 13 people in the book, but I have a list of over 40 people, which is growing that are just a really fascinating group of individuals. And it really takes you learning about their life takes you on a great walk through the 20th century um, to eras that we're getting further and further away from. And it gives you a great perspective into the world of Disney. You know, the people that I cover really are sort of outsiders who entered the world of Disney briefly and then left. So it's really interesting to see how did they interact with this world? What did they think? How did their work, you know, how did they look upon their work? And so, you know, I came up with a list of 13 people and just got to work and, you know, and compiled this book. So Spencer, given how the Disney library of books covers such a vast range of topics, um, sometimes very broad in nature, other times quite narrow, why is it that you think that voice artist has that that umbrella of a topic, so to speak, has been relatively understudied. I know one um, challenge I encountered, but it was also rewarding, is finding information on their work. You know, could be quite a task. Um, one of my best examples is I cover Hans Conried, who voiced Captain Hook and his other Disney connections. And I read an interview with one of the animators where he was asked, what did you think of Hans Conried? And he said, oh, he was great to work with anyway. And then he changed the topic. Um, and I encountered that over and over and over again. Or it was something like, yeah, they were great to work with. And then they moved on. So when I did find something to include in the book, it made it extremely rewarding. Um, but it was very much like a needle in the haystack type situation. Um, so it was a challenge, but it was well worth it. It almost seems paradoxical in nature that, you know, voice artists that there wouldn't be as much attention to them, given that they're often more um, salient than at times the animators, right? We're familiar with the voices sometimes because of just, you know, consuming the films or, or other media that they've lent their talent to. Um, and, and maybe not so much the individuals who have crafted the characters, but it sounds like there just has been an inattention to these really important individuals and in giving life to the characters. Right, and I think part of it too is a lot of the worlds they were part of have faded. So I spent a lot of time listening to old time radio. You know, I discuss old time radio a decent amount in the book. And it was a medium from about the early 20s into the 60s that was just a crucial part of American life. It was how people got their news. It was where entertainment came from. It was everywhere. And then as TV took over, it kind of faded. So people like Verna Felton, who I cover, who voiced many characters, you know, she was all over old time radio, but then that world went away. So I don't know if the people were always as well known then as they would be now. Where I go back to Hans Conried again, you know, he was very popular in terms of radio, guest appearances on TV shows, but he didn't have the look that studio executives wanted from a movie star. So in a more shallow time, he never became a star. So I think some of the people I cover have been swept under the rug a little bit. Not all of them. So I have a chapter on Angela Lansbury, 
who voiced Mrs. Potts, so she's still extremely well-known. Um, Peggy Lee, she wrote and sang some of the songs in Lady and the Tramp, and she's still pretty well-known as well. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Well, what I appreciated about your title is that you really cover the gamut of Disney, and you're also really mindful of different eras in the company from you know, the earliest days and talking about an Eleanor Audley to more recently someone like Eartha Kitt, um, even though you know she has you know since been you know uh, been deceased, um, you know Emperor's New Groove twenty years later is still uh, a very uh, popular, even if it's not a Lion King, is still popular beloved film. So you really give attention to folks who span these different errors of Disney and and even demonstrate how even beyond their main titular role, they've still held influence in other parts of the company as well. Yeah, especially bridging some did um, movies and parks. So I mentioned Thrall Ravenscroft too. If you listen to anything Disney, been on any Disney attraction, you've heard his sort of deep booming voice. Um, I did have my last chat on Angela Lansbury because I wanted to end in the present. And she's still alive and quite well. Um, you know, she's semi-retired, but she still works. And her career began in the 40s. Right, and we most recently saw her in Mary Poppins Returns a few years ago, which was just a beautiful conclusion to that movie as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, and I made sure also the mix of people who are well-known like Eartha Kitt versus people like Eleanor Audley, who I don't know is really known at all. Um, except for the credit of the fact that she voiced Maleficent, Lady Tremaine, Madame Leota. And I think part of it is people living in an era before social media, if they don't have family to maintain their legacy and to maintain their work, then it's a little challenging. Um, you know, interviews that she would have done would not necessarily have been recorded unless you're in a newspaper. Um, so especially podcasts now, when you hear interviews with all these Disney artists and things like that, you know, those are historical documents that we can record and save. Um, somebody like Ed Wynn, who voiced the Mad Hatter, who passed away in 1966, there isn't as much because it wasn't recorded. Um, so again, that's, that's part of the reason why there was this mix between the past and the present. Yeah, well, I value that there is that sense of honoring individuals across you know, different portions of Disney because I think it illustrates the importance of vocal talent from really the earliest days of, of Disney producing um, film. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really interested, you talked about how you curated a list of different voice artists who you were interested in. How did you ultimately settle on these specific 13? Because I can imagine uh, that was not an easy feat. No. And so since it's my first book, I mostly pick names that I knew I could research. Um, so there's quite a few books written about Peggy Lee, um, or like Eartha Kitt wrote several books herself. And, you know, again, I did try and balance that mix of people who were known and not as known. Um, but there are people like, there's an individual, Martha Wentworth, who voiced Madame Mim in Sword in the Stone. She voiced Jenny Wren in 1935's um, who killed Cock Robin, and her I really couldn't find much on initially. So I thought, this is my first book. I need to stick with people who I know there's information out there. Um, so that was a big part of it. And then I also wanted to make sure I span different eras 
And while most of the book focuses on animated film, there are some shorts and parks as well. So for example, I covered the Jungle Book pretty thoroughly. And there's a couple other people from the Jungle Book that I kind of wanted to write about, but I thought, okay, well, I've covered that movie quite a bit. Um, same with Alice in Wonderland, same with Lady and the Tramp. So I mostly stick with that era of sort of what people call, I'm saying in air quotes, like the golden age of animation. But then I also cover films like The Aristocats and Robin Hood, which tend to get a little bit overlooked. Um, one of the things that I'm hoping with the book is that even if, you know, of course I'd be learning more about the people, but even just give these movies another chance. Um, I knew The Aristocats wasn't necessarily a fan favorite, um, but it seems to be one that's not really liked at all. Or I did see Robin Hood get a lot of criticism because it does reuse, you know, its fair share of animation, um, but they're still strong films on their own merits. You know, there's still beautiful animation, beautiful backgrounds, music. So that was part of the goal. Or if you haven't watched these movies in a long time, maybe you give it a chance. Um, and that's where Disney Plus comes in, making all of these things easier than ever. Even when I started Eartha Kitt, who voiced Yzma, The Emperor's New School, as far as I could tell, was never really released. It was a television show. It was never really released on any media. So I got to a point where I thought, I don't know if I can really cover her since I can't watch the show. And then Disney Plus came out and it was on Disney Plus. Um, so I think that really helps a lot because like I so said, you already paid your subscription, just give, you can just give the work a chance and maybe you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's a really astute point because it's so much more accessible to consume this content that otherwise would have been harder to find as you make reference to Denver's new school. But I also think some of these more obscure or, or less uh, appreciated Disney animated films as well. And one of the, um, I guess, notes that you kind of thread it throughout the book, um, and then there's like a specific portion where you're more explicit about it is how, you know, in, in light of Disney Plus and, and these films kind of reemerging for, for newer audiences, how Disney has had to be very intentional about uh, referencing harmful depictions of um, based on gender um, or, and, and race and other um, social identities in their classic animated films. And you talk about how it's almost like a tightrope walk for, for the company and, and some of these characters, you, you talk very much about um, the, the Jim Crow character in Dumbo, among others. H how have you made sense of, of that and how ultimately you were very um, intentional in, in weaving that throughout the book? And that actually was one of the last things that I wrote in the book in terms of newer content, because as I was writing the book, it was everything was changing so quickly. Um, so on Disney Plus, the content warning changed, you know, the announcement to change Splash Mountain was changed. So I really just tried to be as neutral as possible and just explain, okay, what decisions might Disney make? You know, what are the points of view? So, you know, Jim Crow voiced by Cliff Edwards, um, who also voiced Jiminy Cricket. Now even saying the name Jim Crow was a little uncomfortable and it seemed like there was a possibility of maybe removing the crows, um, which did not, when it were on Disney Plus, which I don't know how they would have been able to do that anyway, but it didn't happen. And so you're right, it was just sort of this trying to stay as neutral as possible and really respecting the work of the past. You know, Peggy Lee wrote some wonderful songs for Lady and the Tramp, but she also wrote and sang the Siamese Cat song. Um, so one thing I think about is everyone in the book, if they're not already, should be a Disney legend. But with Peggy Lee, can you really make her a Disney legend when she wrote 
the Siamese cat song. So, I mean, whoever's making these decisions in Disney definitely has a very, very tough job. And I think so far they're doing the best they can um, in terms of making decisions, in terms of what warnings, what content to remove, not include. Um, you know, they're gonna have people mad at them no matter what they do. But I think they're doing a great job trying to stay neutral. And that was my goal as well, is keep your own opinion out of it and just explain what happened, what are the points of view. So the Crows and Dumbo, you know, Disney legend Whoopi Goldberg wants to see on more merchandise. And it's interesting in the Aristocats, which I cover a decent bit, one of my favorite Disney songs is Everybody Wants to Be a Cat. And there's another offensive sign this cat. But this offensive cat appears on a lot of merchandise and quite prominently on merchandise. But the crows from Dumbo don't. But then you'll see a lot of times Dumbo holding one of the black feathers. So it's just really interesting, you know, how they approach it. Um, it is something I'm also mindful about more in the parks. Because um, I think that's also where we've really seen the material change. So it's just interesting how quickly it evolved. It was like, I don't think I should, I think I'll just wait and see, because otherwise I'm going to spend a lot of time writing things that I'm going to essentially delete. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a straightforward, um, th there are no straightforward decisions in terms of uh, a company handling its uh, legacy of characters and how they've been used. And, and as you mentioned too, in the case of the Peggy Lee and, and writing that song, you know, perhaps in that era, that would have been, it wouldn't have been questioned, but of course, looking at it from the 2021, 2022 lens, I mean, it's very um, offensive. So I think that it sounds like your role as an author has been to really present the facts and allow readers to make their own conclusions of, of, of context and time and, and ultimately um, how that plays out in a more modern age. Right, and definitely watch it and give it critical thought, you know, and, and make, sort of make up your own mind. Um, I didn't cover it because it's not really available, but Song of the South is another movie where we can't even watch it and make up our own minds. Um, but, you know, Lady and the Tramp, you can, um, or The Aristocats, you can. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of inconsistencies as, as you recognize, and I think that that allows for all of us as consumers to really just try to deconstruct what is available to us and, and see how it resonates or doesn't or, or can be reimagined um, in, in the age that we do live in. And, and one thing I'm really curious about, Spencer, you talk about how you were um, trying to, to find old radio programs and old interviews. What was the coolest piece of media that you feel you uncovered while researching uh, any of these voice artists? Well, I have a blog that I think is fantastic and it's um, Deja View. It's Andreas Deja's blog. And he puts a lot of things on there. It's a sort of material that you're not gonna find anywhere else. So it's like pictures, um, different. He actually even had some quotes from recording sessions he listened to from classic films. And that was a really fantastic find. And it goes back years. So even if you go on that website and search a character or a film or an artist, there's just fantastic, fantastic comment, uh, content. And again, it's things you're not gonna see everywhere else. And that was a really, really crucial tool. Um, I know in terms of books, another book that was fantastic, which I don't think I see pop up enough on books you should read lists, is um, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston wrote a book about Disney villains. 
they have two, but the villains one is very, very cool. And then the other one is called Illusion of Life. And that takes you through the entire animation process. Um, and it's one that really inspired animators after it was written. And that helped me because I'm not an artist, I'm a writer. And prior to writing the book, I'd written a lot of articles about visiting and touring Walt Disney World, but I hadn't written about animation, music, movies. And it was this really excellent just sort of tutorial and guide, but they also keep it interesting because that's the sort of thing that could get dry very quickly. So it's not a textbook, but it still has useful content. Yeah, and how were you approaching, since you were researching, you know, 13 voice artists, were you, were you gathering information one at a time? Were you mixing it up? How did you process that for, for yourself and, and how you wanted to convey these individuals' life stories? Initially, I was going to do it one person at a time. And then basically, immediately, I realized that was not going to work. Um, so essentially, you're studying both the person um, the films they were in, and the overarching history of the studio. Um, and then I also just went through and found books that I knew would be useful. So for example, the villains book, I sat and read from start to finish, and I cover plenty of villains. So Maleficent, Lady Tremaine, Captain Hook. And I tried to keep a basic framework of going one person at a time. Um, but then every so often, I would sort of take a little break to study a movie and see where the content might fit. It was much more organized than it sounds. But I had this sort of thought in my head of doing one person at a time. I was like, this just isn't going to work at all. Because if I'm studying Lady and the Tramp, well, I'm covering it in other chapters. So if I talk about Aunt Sarah, who was voiced by Verna Felton, well, then I could put it in her chapter as well. And then I'm starting her section. The other thing that I found was interesting, listening to a lot of these old-time radio shows, is I would hear multiple people who have connections from the world of Disney on the same program like maybe the same episode of the same show. And so it was a lot of like, well, this might fit in well with Hans Conried. It might fit in well with Verna Felton. They were two people who basically worked all the time on radio. Um, if anyone's ever watched The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, there's a segment where she's doing work on radio and she runs from show to show, making like little bits of money. That's kind of what they did. In reading through the book, it almost felt like six degrees of Kevin Bacon because yes. everybody seems to have been connected, if not by a particular film, then certainly other avenues within the world of Disney or just show business broadly. Yeah, I was going to try and keep track and see, okay, what episode of an old-time radio show can I hear the most people on that have a, like a, direction, a connection to the world of Disney? But there were so many with like five or six, I just sort of dropped it. I'm like, well, it's all over. It's funny. Spencer, I'd love for us to talk about some of the particular individuals that you highlighted in the book. Um, one who stood out to me, and I was only exposed to this more recently, and I sh should have um, as, as a longtime Disney fan, but the adventures of uh, Mr. Toad and Ichabod Crane. Um, and I, I absolutely loved um, the Ichabod Crane segment and, and listening to Bing Crosby, and, and you certainly give him uh, a good deal of attention in this book, um, and, and you and you write about how you how any of us can really hear his voice uh, in the theme parks, and how his crooning would ultimately influence other Disney characters. Can you talk about just the general reach of Bing Crosby uh, across Disney? Yeah, well, so in the '30s, '40s, '50s, '60s, he was one of the top stars in the United States. 
um, movies, radio, music. And he narrated the Ichabod Crane section of 1949's The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Um, that's probably my favorite Disney movie. And it was one of the package films in the late 40s. And so he sort of, you know, to this sort of gothic, scary tale, he added his own crooning. Um, I'm not going to even try and imitate it because I'm not a singer, but it's a very unique style that really helped lighten up this otherwise scary gothic tale that Disney didn't necessarily want to make. I mean, obviously they were fine having some elements of it, but he narrated it. And what's interesting about him too is that he was very much just coming in and using his own talents. So he came in, he sang it the way he would want to sing it. Um, he essentially did it in one take with some revisions and it was very popular. It was good for his career. You know, it's a great association with the Disney brand. A lot of the package films in the late 40s, which I think have plenty of merits on their own, included these popular American musicians. Um, part of the problem with Fantasia was audiences maybe didn't necessarily want to hear all this classic music, but they did want to hear people like Bing Crosby or the Andrews sisters or um, Dina Shore, Dinah Shore, Nelson Eddy, who were well-known, some of them are still well-known, but well-known at the time. And then Bing Crosby, he's probably also mostly known today for singing Christmas music especially White Christmas and um, Mele Kaliki Maka. And you can hear it all over Disney parks at Christmas time. So I was just there for my first Christmas and I heard it all over the place. I knew it was in the queue for um, the Jungle Cruise. So it's called the Jingle Cruise at Christmas, but it's all over Hollywood studios. It's in a lot of restaurants and it's true just anywhere across the world at Christmas time, but especially, you know, in the Disney parks. So it's just interesting. I don't know if the names is well known anymore, but his music, if, if you ever listen to anything or got in public at all, you hear his music all the time. Right. Well, and, and I mean, he was so popular for those, the road films with Bob Hope and um, so many classics in the 40s and 50s and that era. Um, so it was, it's very cool that he's had that type of impact um, in the world of Disney. So I appreciated that context via your chapter. Yeah, and I'm glad because Halloween was so popular in the parks that the film's also getting a little more attention. Um, so I think, yeah, I think all those package films are a little too obscure. Yeah, but you know, and, and you talk about, you know, the Sleepy Hollow uh, refreshment stand at Magic Kingdom. So there are like these subtle or not so subtle references to, um, to Ichabod Crane and, and company. Yeah, it's um, the Sleepy Hollow Refreshments is based off of Sunnyside, which was author Washington Irving's home in New York. And the home today looks just like the building at Liberty Square. That's awesome. And I, and I must correct myself, and, and you thankfully said it right, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. That is not the easiest film title because <laughs> there's a few, there's a couple components there, so. No, and some things I didn't cover, like, so some things I found myself saying differently to make sure I wrote it out correctly. So I don't cover it too much, but now I'll always intend to intentionally say Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Dwarfs, so I don't write dwarves. And there's a lot of things like that. So it's easy to get wrong. Absolutely. You know, Spencer, I, I much like many Disney fans, I love Edwin and Mad Hatter and, and so many of his characters. And, you know, voice artists like him actually paved the way for successors who would follow in their footsteps by voicing the very same character. So I think of how Corey Burton, who's so prolific, 
has been a perfect example of that and drawing on those uh, those examples for his own take of the character. How do you feel some of those foundational voice actors from the 40s, 50s, 60s set the tone for how these characters have been voiced and portrayed in subsequent decades by different individuals? I think they set a very high bar, but they also set an example of what a character should sound like. Um, you know, one of the reasons why the radio performers were so popular at, the, at every studio, but especially Disney, is because they knew how to use just their voice to make a character. You know, with radio, you can just close your eyes and see the scene. So, you know, Hans Conrad, who voiced George Darling, as well as Captain Hook, he knew how to make a powerful character. And so they really set this template. A lot of them also were able to meet people who voiced them. So Hans Conrad lived long enough. Well, I hope I don't get this wrong. Corey Burton, who voices Captain Hook later, actually met him. Of course, I learned that after the book was published, but it helps, you know, inspire his own character. Um, so, I mean, they're big shoes to fill. Um, and I think it takes a big talent to do it. Yeah, and you make reference to, to how some of the more renowned voice artists are actually known for voicing several lead characters um, across many different titles. Uh, Eleanor Audley, Verna Felton, Phil Harris, so many others. How do you make sense of that given that, you know, we may often attribute an individual to one role, but there are many examples where we can hear them in many different spots across very different types of characters. I think it just speaks to their talents. Um, my favorite example of this is Verna Felton, who voiced, she voiced in Dumbo, the elephant matriarch and Mrs. Jumbo. She voiced the fairy godmother in Cinderella. And probably the greatest contrast, she voiced the queen of hearts in Alice in Wonderland. Um, so it's just such a diverse talent. A lot of them too were basically workaholics. So they worked all kinds of jobs all the time. So Verna Felton was always on stage, radio, Broadway, television. And I think part of it, I mean, they worked hard and they were talented, but it was also out of hunger. You know, they had to make a living. So they were able to fill a lot of these roles. Um, I know with Ed Wynn, he came from vaudeville, which by the time Alice in Wonderland was released in the 50s was basically long gone. But, you know, that sort of loud, bombastic character, he was able to pull on this experience from the stage where he really had to fill a room. Um, and same with Verna Fountain, she also briefly worked on Longville. Although it's interesting, you see a hierarchy in um, sort of like the performing arts where Verna Felton had worked in stock companies on the stage, and then at one point she was sort of reduced to working in vaudeville. But it was just sort of an interesting hierarchy that I uncovered. I think another thing that was interesting with sort of voice actors of the past versus today is Verna Felton had this really funny interview where she's talking about how she voiced the elephant. And she's like, I have no idea how to voice an elephant. Like no one's voiced an elephant. I have no idea what I'm doing. I just went in, I did the best job I could. I talked how I thought an elephant could talk and I left versus now where I think it's very common for major celebrities even to voice roles. And it's almost a part of like a popular actor's like resume that they voice roles. But, you know, this is the beginning of the animated film, animated shorts. So it's like, how do I voice an elephant? Or how do I voice a flower? <laughs> no, but that's very true because it generally wasn't, you know, top talent in, in the industry 
voicing a Disney character. I mean, maybe, uh, I guess you could argue, you know, Bing Crosby would be an exception because of just how prominent he was in, in the media in, in the 40s. But but some of these folks were, were no pun intended, character actors, which yeah. is kind of cool. Yeah, and that's part of where I got the idea for the book because I thought I was really, I've always been fascinated with character actors, but at this point, the market's pretty saturated with books about character actors, which isn't a bad thing. I enjoy reading them. But, you know, it's just interesting, too, to think if these people were born later, how would their life have been different? You know, if Hans Conried was, say, born in 1980, I could see him being, because he was this very sort of funny, intelligent, sophisticated man, but he also was good at relating to everybody. So I could see him now being a major, major celebrity, but because he didn't fit this very shallow, narrow sort of matinee idol looks, I'm saying in air quotes, he's almost sort of reduced to being like the character actor. Right. Well, what, what is very interesting, and, and we know this as folks who consume Disney content of things in the past, that there were often live action references for these animated characters. And you talk about how Hans Conrad was actually a live action reference um, as well, not just voicing uh, Captain Hook. Can you talk about just the influence of those early voice artists and sometimes giving that um, additional point of information for animators in terms of understanding physicality and movement? Right. So Hans Conrad, he had um, did the live action for Captain Hook, as you referenced. Probably some of the footage still survives and it's pretty easily available. And so probably my favorite example is Ed Wynn doing live action work as the Mad Hatter for Alice in Wonderland. And you can almost see how they almost identically mimicked their work. Now they use it as an inspiration. Um, a lot of interviews I've read with animators, I relied heavily on the Waltz People series by DDA Gez, which has interviews. They didn't rotoscope, so they didn't trace what he did you know, onto paper and do an exact copy, but it heavily inspired his work, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I don't, one of my favorite examples of live action referencing of a character, I didn't cover her in this book, but Betty Lou Gerson voiced Cruella and actress Mary Wicks, who was a character actress, she provided the live action reference. And so she actually, like throughout the rest of her life, said she was the one who really created this character. She's responsible for the character's look and appeal. Um, so if anyone who did live action, she's the one that stands out the most as really taking credit for influencing the character. Now, the voice artist didn't always provide a live action reference. So for example, for Verna Felton and the Queen of Hearts and Alice in Wonderland, it was an actress named Jodie Gilbert, um, who sort of has an unfortunate story. In the book, I try and stay very tight talking about really just the person and their character and keep a tight, brief framework. But Jodie Gilbert was actually in the same category as Verna Felton, where she was very much pigeonholed in terms of her size. Um, so they both were in roles a lot where they would make jokes about their size. And that's why she was selected to do the live action reference. And those pictures exist as well. I don't know if the footage exists, but I've seen the pictures. Um, so it's just really interesting to see. And some animators, I don't think always liked it as much, but one thing I uncovered too is that a lot of times live action references would include animals. So early animators went to the circus a lot. Um, circuses, especially that would winter in California, they went to zoos. So, you know, one of the reasons why a lot of these characters look so lifelike is because they're based directly on real life. So they look lifelike because they are. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and you mentioned Mary Wicks, which makes me think of how she voiced 
Laverne in Hunchback of Notre Dame. So she would ultimately uh, be a Disney character in another capacity decades later. Yeah, she did. It's unfortunate. Actually, um, her, I, I didn't feel I could cover because she passed away while she was voicing the role. Yeah. So I wasn't sure how much of Laverne, um, I mean, how much of Mary Wicks was in Laverne. Um, but she has a whole other story of being involved with Touchstone and everything else. So I won't get started on Mary Wicks. We'll be here all night. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say, like, let's just shift over to Sister Act then and, and just yeah. transition to that. Um, you know, I, I also, uh, just a character that probably my absolute favorite Disney character that's not um, in the Sensational Six or however they they call the, the main uh, group of six Disney characters, but Jimmy Cricket and his legacy outs, has just been very profound, certainly with When You Wish Upon a Star, which you write about how that's presented it, it, itself across different contexts. But Jimmy Cricket's legacy has also been outside of the film. Um, you, you talk about the I'm No Fool series and other spaces. Um, with the character and, and Cliff Edwards continuing to give a spotlight to that inimitable insect. Um, what would you say were some of Edwards' trademark elements? Well, it's interesting in terms of Jiminy Cricket, I'll, I'll get back to that in a moment, but his, you know, um, Cliff Edwards, who's on his ukulele, Ike, and in the 20s, he was a massive, massive star, especially on early radio. You know, the ukulele was a popular instrument. It was lightweight, inexpensive, relatively easy to learn. And he had a very soft voice that didn't blow out the radio tubes, which was a problem some people had because they were too loud. But he had this soft voice. He was very popular on the vaudeville stage. He was in some early sound films. Unfortunately, he had a serious substance abuse problem. So by the time he auditioned for Jiminy Cricket, he, he, he hadn't quite bottomed out, but he was getting there. Um, so he voiced Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio and then um, Jim Crow and Dumbo. And he absolutely loved the Disney studio. By that point, he had toured in different parts around the world. He'd been on the vaudeville stage, but he loved the Disney studio more than any other place. And he helped shape Jiminy Cricket's role as one of the main characters in Pinocchio, in part because he could serve as a great narrator and a great bridge without being overpowering or without really stealing the scene. You could focus on him and then you could pan out as you needed. Now, and I know he had a strong legacy you know, about when you wish upon a star, but when I started research for the book, I had absolutely no idea how much of a legacy. You know, I think I remember hearing about the shorts before, but I had no idea there was this whole world of Jiminy Cricket shorts. So I, I can't imagine I'm alone. Um, and so I think it's, you know, Great that it also helps keep Cliff Edwards' legacy alive as well, which, and he loved that character. He voiced the character in commercials. Um, he, you know, provided his voice either as Jiminy Cricket or just as himself on different Disneyland records. So Disney was a massive part of his life and it really gave him a lot of comfort in later years when otherwise he was essentially unemployable and penniless. So his chapter was interesting because it's so many good things and then it's just so sad and terrible at the same time. Um, so I didn't want to shy away from it. You know, I didn't want to sort of sugarcoat or some people with Disney accuse things of being like, like pixie dust and everything cheerful. I didn't want to do that with him, but I didn't want to focus too much on the bad side either. Um, so he certainly had his ups and downs, which is true of everybody. Um, but the main thing with Jiminy Cricket is that, again, he fills that role as serving as a host that you can then pan away from. 
Um, and that's something I noticed with Disney, this great balance in terms of trying to have a certain subtlety while also keeping your attention. Um, one of my favorite discoveries in the book was Eleanor Audley recording a potential Raven host for um, the Haunted Mansion. But one of the reasons it was dropped is because the Raven was basically so loud and annoying, it took away your attention from the rest of the Haunted Mansion. But anyway, back to Cliff Edwards. So he loved that role. Jiminy Cricket had a big legacy. It still does. Um, you know, one of the earliest pieces of in-park music is When You Wish Upon a Star, or an orchestral version, that plays in Sleeping Beauty Castle in Disneyland. Um, and it still plays today. There you go. And, you know, you write about these off these these voice artists, I should say, not authors, voice artists who provided roles later on in their careers as well. Um, and and many of these folks, it was really fascinating to find that, you know, among their their last performance for in, in any form of media was through a Disney film or, or a character. And in the case of Eartha Kitt, Isma was later on in her career, and you talk about Bemper's New School as well, and she passed away shortly thereafter. But one of the discoveries that I had, and I've, I've read about her in other contexts, but she, she had a very resilient spirit. She was exiled from the world of show business for a time and, and ultimately just continued to come out strongly and to be a, really a social justice advocate as well. Um, how do you make sense of just that that tenacity that an Eartha kid demonstrated and how that would ultimately contribute to her voicing of, of what is now a very popular Disney villain? Yeah, well, so there's a great Walt Disney quote that I love. So there was a 1964 movie called The Moon Spinners, which is sort of mediocre. And so when he saw it, he said, let's move on to something else. And that was his view, really, whether something was a success or whether it wasn't, is you just move on to something else and you keep going. And I think, you know, Eartha Kitt had that same sort of tenacity. Um, and while there was definitely a feistiness behind it, I think it was also just the idea that you move on to the next thing. So, you know, she had some issues where she essentially was blacklisted in the United States. So she went overseas and she remained a big star overseas and came back and kept working in the United States. So you just keep moving on to something else. Or Verna Felton, she just kept chugging along and working. And then as you mentioned, her last role was um, Winifred in the Jungle Book. And she passed away a day before Walt Disney did. So that's a phrase I always keep in mind is let's move on to something else. You know, there's an interview that Walt Disney did with the newspaper about six months after Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs came out. And this reporter was asking him about this great triumph and this great accomplishment. He's like, why are you bringing this up? We're moving on to other things. And I think that's, you know, a great phrase to keep in mind is let's move on to something else, whether it's positive, whether it's negative, and just keep going. So in that same spirit um, of kind of moving on, um, you know, what, what should readers come away with after checking out your book? The main key, I think, is to keep an open mind, you know, to make sure you keep an open mind with all of these movies, all these shorts, you know, if you see something on Disney Plus and you're not sure if you'll like it, try it. You already paid your subscription fee. You know, see if you like the Aristocats. Like I said, I saw a lot of animosity, especially toward Robin Hood. Give Robin Hood a try. See if you like it. You know, really pay attention to these movies. If you see a name in the credits you haven't seen before, Google the person and find out who they are. Um, definitely give Old Time Radio a try. Um, I'll share my social media at the end, but I post different Old Time Radio episodes. It's a really great way to immerse yourself in the past 
and you don't know, you may come away really liking it. Yeah, it, it is always a fun little time capsule to, to check something like that out and to really realize that they were, they were so reliant on, on just the power of, of voice and different sounds to create that sense of ambiance because you don't have the visual component. Yeah, it's a whole different world of, you know, no social media, no cell phones. If you didn't have a car, you hitchhiked to get around. Um, and I think you also have to use your imagination. Unlike a lot of things like the Marvel films, which just kind of spoon feed you every sense. You know, you have to use your yeah. imagination, um, which I think sometimes is lacking. People are just using their imagination. For sure. Uh, before we go into the set of Disney opinion related questions and, and how folks can follow you, can I ask, is there, is there more on the docket for you in terms of, of writing uh, about voice artists? Oh, I have plenty I'm looking into. I have a few people that I'm trying to see if I can write a book about that one person or that one character. Um, that's a tall order for one book, but especially I'm always fascinated with villains. So I'm really researching this world of villains. So there's definitely plenty on the docket. You just have to make sure it can be put together into a coherent, enjoyable book. For sure. Well, I think there's definitely a foundation here that you've established and um, no doubt there's an audience for folks who love the villains. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Spencer, let's move on to some Disney opinion related questions. Um, I know you know the questions, uh, so we'll, we'll explore some of these. Uh, starting off with some music related ones. Is there a Disney soundtrack that you listened to most while growing up? As a teenager, I was obsessed with the Main Street Electrical Parade soundtrack. I remember buying the CD at Zawadi Marketplace and Animal Kingdom Lodge, and I listened to it all the time. Remember CDs? And... Well, what's that I, concept? <laughs> I mean, yeah. what, what about that piece of music really resonated with you? It took me back to watching that parade and you know, being in Magic Kingdom. Something about that parade just caught my imagination. And I think one trip, my sister and I watched it almost every night. So it always just took me right back to that place. Hmm. That's so when that's they used to have parades at nine and 11. Right, exactly. <laughs> Spencer, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf gets stuck in my head a lot. I love to listen to that WDW Today channel when at home, the one that shows up on the Walt Disney World Resorts. And that song features prominently. So it gets stuck in my head all the time. The other yeah, one is the Bells of Notre Dame. Hmm. How, how so? Well, it's also featured in that. It always gets stuck in my head all the time as well. Maybe something about it's just catchy. Yeah. I was going to say, because I remember in the book, you, you referenced how I think it was Give a Little Whistle is also mm -hmm. on on that channel. So any, any of those in the background, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. What Disney film do you feel is the most underrated music? 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from the 1954 live action feature. I think it's a little bit too overlooked anyway, just the movie as a whole, but especially the music. Because that was uh, Paul J. Smith, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That has a really dynamic theme, very ominous. Yeah. You can still hear it a little bit in Magic Kingdom, but I think it's sort of underrated. Mm. Nice. Let's move over to books. Um, what is the most recent Disney book that you have read? So I actually just read, I'm turning to look at it. 
It's 50 Years in the Mouse House by Eric Larson. So he was one of the nine old men. And I mentioned the Illusion of Life book earlier. This book is a lot smaller. It's more like a paperback you can hold and read. And it just takes you through um, the art of animation. But if you're not an artist, it's such a um, like digestible sort of clear book because he was an animation teacher. So it makes sense. Now, I realize that this might be a, a, a bit of a leading question, but if you could write a Disney book on any topic other than voice artists, uh, what would it be about? So I'm really fascinated with the early history of Walt Disney World. Um, so, I mean, some has been written about it, but how did they turn this swamp into Walt Disney World and maintain it? So some has been written about it. I don't think nearly enough. And I think there's a lot more out there to write. Um, I thought about trying to write a book about the ducks of Walt Disney World, but I don't think there's enough there. But you could write a book about the ducks and other animals. You know, what animals live there? How does Disney maintain them? Because, I mean, people know there's ducks, there's alligators, but there's bears, armadillo, turkeys, deer. You know, what do they do to control these animals while also respecting the environment? You know, I think right next to Kadani Village, there's a swamp, which I'm sure is full of all kinds of wildlife. So how do they keep it from getting up to the resort? Um, you know, if they see an animal injured, do they care for it? Do the nature take its course? You know, how are they handling a lot of these animals coming back? So mm -hmm. there's a whole bear controversy in central Florida. I'm intrigued. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot there. Yeah, well, especially when you're talking about outside of the animals that they care for as part of Animal Kingdom or the, or the Seas Pavilion or some of those spaces, but more of just in the surrounding areas. And even during the closure, how did that affect it? Because apparently the animals just kind of reemerged. So, you know, bobcats. It's like one of those 50 sci-fi films where just every kind of animal popping up. Right. I, I do say, I, I, I must say, I love the notion of the ducks of Disney. That would be cool because, I mean, you know, you walk around any of the parks really at times and you might just see a, a mother and all the ducklings and it's adorable. So Yeah. And are they fed or they cared for? They must do something to keep them going from certain areas, or maybe they don't. True, true. There's a wonderful, it was like a press photo from, I want to say maybe the 70s or 80s of Donald walking through the Magic Kingdom, I think, with a whole like row of actual ducks, and it's just absolutely precious. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. So here's your random question, Spencer. Uh, what Disney voice artist who does not have a Disney Legend Award, do you feel should be given one? I know you made a brief reference to this at the top of the episode, but I still wanted to include this. Oh, well, there's one that really, I mean, it's all a shame if they're not, but um, Lucille Laverne, she voiced the evil queen and the old hag in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So, you know, she was the first person to speak in a full-length Disney animated movie, the first character to die in a full-length animated movie. Um, well, they were villains before her, you know, I think she's, in my opinion, the most evil sort of queen of villains. And she's someone who I think should be a lot better known. It's kind you know of surprising. I mean? Surprising yeah. that she hasn't been, that she hasn't garnered that. More and more, it, they seem to be selecting people who can really promote the title. And I don't think it's always a bad thing. Like you want people to be aware of the title, but there's a lot of people like Peggy Lee, Eleanor Audley, um, it seems a little random. So Betty Lou Gerson, who voiced Corella DeVille, she's a Disney legend, which I, which makes sense. But then some of these other people like Lucille Laverne are not. Um, 
so I really hope, I, I think they might be naming a new batch next year, maybe, maybe the year after, but I really hope, I don't think this will happen, that they pick like a more obscure batch where people have to Google it and kind of go who. Right. Yeah. And see, well, certainly the trend has been with the D23 Expos that they've gone with that model, but now obviously it's been more than two years. So I, I would envision it will be for the one in fall 22, but you know, in terms of like trends, Spencer, it really seems like they've also been focusing on like what's, what's new and relevant. Right. So with the, the last expo, it was, you know, the, the release of the new interpretation of Lion King. So they had James Earl Jones and Hans Zimmer, um, John Favreau. So it seems like that's kind of a, a direction the company's moving in, in terms of who's produced several stuff for us and do they have something new that's debuting for us? Yeah, you know, like the character statues they put around Walt Disney World 50th anniversary. I, I knew this was going to happen, but I was so disappointed when it was just the most mainstream sort of obvious characters. There's so many they could have picked that I wish even if they picked five that people had to kind of go who? Um, who are really important. So Jenny Wren is a character from a 1935 Silly Symphony who really represents advances in animation. Um, and there's all kinds of people like that that said, so I knew they were going to just pick the most mainstream people, but it was still disappointing. But yeah. now, you know, with more media, you have easier access to learn about, you know, all True. these people and characters and everything else. Yeah. That, see, that's what I kind of along those lines with the statues. That's what I appreciate about. Uh, Shanghai Disneyland with their 12 statues representing um, different animals um, and and they focused on some like really niche characters in that yes. space so yeah how can listeners follow your work and and your presence in other spaces so I have a Facebook page it's Spencer Wright author so it's Spencer Wright, comma, author. And then on Instagram, I'm at Overlooked Diz. So I post every day or two, usually something that you're not going to see, maybe an old advertisement that I found while doing research and interesting facts. Um, you know, I really try and keep it different. So things you're not going to see, you know, all the time. Great. There's a whole well, world out there within Disney to discover. Oh, yes. And, and see, that's the beauty of, you know, I think we're living in this era where there's not only so much more stuff on social media, but by virtue of, of books like yours and others, where there's a greater reach in terms of the range of topics that are being spotlighted along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's getting easier than ever. Great. Spencer, thank you so much for your time. Again, the book is called Voices Behind the Magic, and uh, appreciate your conversation with me this evening thank you very much and thanks again to spencer wright for joining me on notably disney to discuss voices behind the magic if you'd like to learn more about any or all of the performers that you heard about from spencer i'd encourage you to check out the book i think you'll have a good read and want to find out even more uh, perhaps watching those movies in which they portrayed those roles or reading a biography or autobiography on those individuals in particular. This is going to be that mechanism for you to want to rediscover some of their classic contributions. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. 
Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to NotablyDisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.